Welcome to the Ghostly Gallery, a place to discuss the genre of horror in film, books, and in popular culture. Well, greetings, everyone. Welcome to our show. My name is Bruce Markison. Our producer is Tracy Asteria. Uh, Tracy uh, won't be joining us on microphone, at least not uh, initially, but uh, we will have um, a lot of fun talking about film, horror movies, and the art of directing horror movies. Our featured guest is a director and a writer. His name is Ansel Farage. Ansel, we uh, welcome you to the program. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Give me a little bit of background on Ansel Farage. And I, I first became aware of him with his 2019 film, Loon Lake, but that was certainly not his first production. Uh, he has done nearly 40 productions, including full-length feature films and also shorter videos. Uh, among the productions that he has done, a series of Dr. Mabusa films. We'll be talking about that. Uh, we will talk about his 2019 film with David Selby and Nathan Wilson, Loon Lake. We'll also talk about his most recent effort, 2023 release, Todd Tarantula, which has been drawing a lot of critical praise online. Uh, and so we thank you again for being with us. And as we begin the show, I wanted to talk to you about how you first became interested in horror. Uh, you were telling us uh, off air that this was something that really began at a very early age be earlier than most people get into the genre of horror yeah i uh my 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 uh my parents were very sort of big genre enthusiasts my mom uh ran home from school to watch dark shadows every day and uh my dad uh would show me the ray harryhausen movies of sinbad and and uh jason and the argonauts and all those and um so it was kind of always, I was always surrounded by it. And uh, my mom also used to like tell me abridged versions of Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles, which was not really child appropriate, but uh, <laughs> I got into it. And um, she would tell me the storylines of, of Dark Shadows as like bedtime stories. Uh, and when I was about four, uh, they had uh, at the Pantages Theater in Los Angeles, this is the early 90s, um, Andrew, Le Andrew Lloyd Webber's Phantom of the Opera played. And so they took me to see it. And this was, you know, long before the film version and the show was a little darker and a little scarier and, and it wasn't sort of glittery as it's become now. And I I was just fascinated by, by how they were doing this. How was he shooting fireballs across the stage? How are they dropping the chandelier you know above the audience's heads and the candles are rising out of the stage and the fog and all this just it, it was fascinating to me and by the time the show was over i was like i i want to do that this hmm. is amazing i want to do this and um that led me down the path of, of discovering the family opera movies and universal monster movies at large and uh when i was five i i Kind of decided that I want to make movies. I wanted to do my own version of Phantom of the Opera, which I hope to still make one day. Um, I had seen the Lon Chaney film and the Claude Rains film, and uh, they, they, I just, I loved that the the way that you could the way that you could affect an audience and draw them in and frighten them or you know make them feel something, and also the effects, obviously. So that all just seemed like so much fun. And there was no real other option for me as a kid to, to accept, I want to do that. I want to make movies. And so, yeah, here we are. You were telling us that one of the first horror films, maybe the first you ever saw, was the 1979 adaptation of Dracula with Frank Langella. And that made a real impression on you, even though you were still pretty young when you saw it. Yeah, it was it was the first R-rated movie I saw. Uh, my mom had the VHS of it, which had the original color uh, prints on it. And I, I again, I was, I was like four years old, five years old, somewhere in there. And 
one day she's like, well, let's watch Dracula. And hmm. I didn't know that the sexuality of it just kind of went above my head. But I knew this is a, you know, it, it it's an R-rated movie and this is something adult that I don't normally get to see. And the atmosphere of it, with the again, the fog and the, the horror aspects of, you know, him crawling down the side of the building and, and uh, you know, ripping the, the sailor's throat out at the, at the opening mm. on the Demeter um, was just, again, fascinating to me of, of how did they do this? And uh, it didn't scare me. Uh, the undead Mina, or I'm, yeah, the undead Mina scared me a bit with her glowing red eyes, which was very vivid on the, on the color version. Um, but I, I liked the way that it, it made me feel. And, and uh, I, it, it, was, it was not a, a, a huge sort of landmark movie in my childhood as, as say, House of Dark Shadows was. But it was definitely a memorable experience. I mean, mostly for the fact that I was super young and this was the first R-rated movie I would see. Um, and then my dad followed it up with Blade Runner. So it <laughs> really kind of bothered me at the time as well. But uh, yeah, it was just the music, John Williams' score in that was, was something that I loved, I remember, uh, at that young age. And so then we would watch the movie on occasion. Um, and then, yeah, as I as I dug deeper into the Universal monster films, and I saw Dracula with with Bela Lugosi, uh, that that made an interesting contrast for for me at at how um, obviously restrained the Todd Browning film is versus the the seventies version, but how you could how each film would be different, and and again like the different Phantom of the Opera is how each film told a had a different spin on the same mythology so that just again fueled my my drive to well i want to do my own and um i don't come from an industry family i, I don't you know i'm not a, a a nepo baby as they like to say nowadays uh, my parents did not work in the industry we didn't have any family friends in the industry so i was kind of left on my own device of uh if you want to do this uh, you know go ahead we support you we encourage you we don't know how exactly to help but, you know, go for it. And, you yeah. um, so then, you know, when I was young, again, I, I, I convinced my parents, you know, please get me a video camera. And one Christmas they finally did. And, uh, so I started making my own, uh, films with, with, the my universal monster action figures and my camcorder. And, uh, I did a sequel to the Bride of Frankenstein where she crossed paths with Dracula's daughter. And it was really fun. I, and, uh. So I just kept going, and um, then I, I, as I got older, I would convince friends from school to come be in my movies. And uh, when I was twenty years old, I suddenly found myself with uh, Jerry Lacey, Kathleen Lee Scott, and Laura Parker uh, in my living room, and we were about to do the table read for Doctor Mabuza. So it's been an interesting journey, and uh, yeah, it's it's a lot of. It's a lot of hard work. I will not mm -hmm. lie about that, but it's fun. What would you rather be doing? A nine to five cubicle job or playing pretend? And, you know, there's no money. I don't come from money. And um, I've yet to make, you know, significant money, but still, it's the best feeling in the world making a movie most times. Most times. Yeah. And so let's go back to that 1979 version of Dracula. It's, it's interesting in a couple of ways. It's one of the more romantic versions of Dracula that's ever been made. And that's that's an impression that I think we still have to this day. Also, when it, it first entered theaters in 79, it came out in a full-color format. But then later on, the director, John Badham, who had wanted it to be a black-and-white film, he... He took out a lot of the colors. He didn't make it completely black and white, but he, he guess, uh, I guess, desaturated the film, and it was almost devoid of color. It had it maybe like a 10% or 15% feel of color to it. I've never seen the color version. You've seen both versions, the one that Batam wanted, the one the studio wanted. Which one do you like better? The color. The color version. It's just, it's, it's, so much more rich and there's this 
this vibrant autumnal feel to it, the leaves and the, the landscapes and uh, the green cliffs in Whitby. And uh, I remember when I got the DVD in 2004 when they reissued it for to time with Van Helsing. Um, I, I was really excited and I put it in and I didn't understand what was wrong. I figured something, they had coded it wrong or, and the, it was just very, very desaturated. And I felt like the life and, and the intensity of the movie had been drained. Uh, something that's, that's very apparent in the color version is, is the vampire's eyes. They glow red and I'm totally lost in, in John Badham's preferred desaturated version and uh that drove me crazy for years i know i was not the only one and then i scream factory when they blu-ray they reissued it with you know one disc has john gotten preferred as the cut that myself and everybody else prefer but there's the full full-blooded um color version like that part and um it's just, I think the better film, it gives the life back to it. it it's, uh, and especially when you're, when you're comparing it to the older, the, the, the early films of the 30s, um, the color just, it, it amplifies everything. It, it sets it apart from what come before. Uh, granted, you know, the Hammer movies are in color too, but like this is, it makes everything sexier. It makes everything more atmospheric. Um, the fog has got like this blue violet tinge to it. It's it's just uh, it's just like I keep saying it it has more life and impact. And I'm happy that they they restored the color version to the, the Blu-ray. That's the only version I watch. Yeah. I want to talk about another influence for you. Now you were you're too young. You're in your early 30s. You're too young to have seen Dark Shadows during its original run from 1966 to 1971. But it was during the 1990s when the Sci-Fi Channel started to air reruns of Dark Shadows. And this is like 25 years later, 25 years after the fact. And even though the show was dated in some ways and had a lot of malaprops and it wasn't always a very smooth production, you really were drawn to it almost from the start. Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, my, my mom used to ditch class to watch the show back on its original run. And uh, she had... And also, let me say something. When I was a kid, uh, the flubs and the the bloopers, if you want to call them that, the, you know, the technical mishaps, I didn't... I mean, I was aware that things were wrong, but I, it didn't affect my viewing. It didn't... I didn't start laughing at it. I didn't make fun of it like the way people seem to enjoy nowadays. Um, I was just sort of caught up in, in the, the, the stories they presented, but yeah, my mom was a, was an original fan and she had Catherine Lee Scott's first book, my scrapbook memories of dark shadows. Uh, and she had gone to one of the book signings and it had been autographed by Catherine and by Jonathan Frit. So mm. she used to tell me the storylines of, of the show, um, when I was super young. And around the same time as she showed me Dracula, she got the book down and I started going through the book and, and looking at the photos and, and reading about it. And, uh, it spurred several things. First of all, that there's a whole process involved in making what you're watching on television or, or on film for that matter. And it, it got me more excited of the, that this is something that can be made, that can be created and, and fueled my my desire to do the same um but i would see you know photos of the show and photos from from house of dark shadows that was included in the book and it was it just it looked so cool it looked so atmospheric and and uh i had you know i had a basic familiarity of, of you know the characters and, and the story from what my mom had told me um sci-fi channel didn't exist at the time but then uh, MGM uh, released the videotapes of House of Dark Shadows and Night of Dark Shadows. And my mom rented it, and she had never seen the movie, which I still think is very strange to me, considering she was watching the show at the time that you know it was originally airing, and they, they, they hyped the hell out of, out of House of Dark Shadows uh, back in 1970. 
but um, she had rented the tape, expecting it to be more or less like the series, and kind of left me alone. Uh, we were actually at uh, uh, my parents' friend's house down in the Palisades, and um, so I was off in like a bedroom watching it on on videotape, and I made it halfway through to um, Carolyn staking before I and I was I was five years old also, uh, and so I got up to that point and you know. Dan Curtis directed the hell out of that movie. It's 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 a a blood and thunder movie in every way, and uh, Bob Covert's music is pounding away, and and uh, everybody's just on edge, and you know, and uh, so it really rattled me, and I got so scared that I even got my mom and the, she took the tape out, uh, which is not how violent it was, and it took me another two years before I could finally see how it ended. Uh, oh. And, uh, but I, I, I was scared, but I loved the way that it made me feel. I liked being scared and I, I liked the way that just, I kept thinking about it. I kept obsessing over it. I kept obsessing over, you know, when, when Lisa Richards is attacked at the opening and, and her violent, gory vampire bite on her neck. And how did they stay care? How did they do the blood coming out of the stake? And just all these things of like, this is so cool. Um, and uh, so it just, again, all of these, these things just fueled my, my passion to do the same. And uh, House of Dark Shadows was much more impactful, I would say, than the Franklin Zellers Dracula um, in setting me on a path to do this uh, crazy job of filmmaking. Um, and uh, United Dark Shadows, I'm very big champion of that film too. Uh, so it's a shame that that MGM cut forty something minutes out of the movie, and uh, it remains very unappreciated. But I think it, I think uh, I have seen. I mean, I've been working on with Darren Gross on the restoration of that film, and I have seen Dan Curtis's original cut. I, I think it's a great spooky ghost story, possession story. The both films have have, have really impacted myself and my filmmaking foundation um yeah i want to talk about both those movies you really hit a chord when you talk to me about house of dark shadows it's easily one of my top 10 favorite horror films of all time it is still underrated and underappreciated to this day occasionally it'll be shown on turner classic movies uh, i wish you were on tv more It's just a wonderful film. It showed you what Dan Curtis could do when he wasn't limited in terms of budget. You know, he had very little budget with the version, and they basically, you know, they they filmed everything and did everything in one take. You'd have boom mics that would move into sight, and actors would forget lines, flub lines. Even great actors like Jonathan Frid and Joan Bennett, they had they had times where they would forget lines. It, it would happen to pretty much everybody. But in the film, you can see with the expanded budget, uh, the fact that they could take more time, they could do all these extra takes. And it really is in many ways a masterpiece. I mean, I, I think that and Burnt Offerings are as good as any films that Dan Curtis ever made. I'm really curious, though, about Night of Dark Shadows, that was the follow-up film that came out in 1971. And you said you've seen the restored version, the version that Dan Curtis wanted. And then he was told by this producer, James Aubrey, you've got to cut all this out of the movie, like 40 minutes worth, and had to make the cuts within, I think, a 48-hour span or a 24-hour span. It was absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, but you've seen the full version. How good is it? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was a 24-hour span, and, and James Aubrey was the the head of MGM. Um, it it's uh, I mean, I have it, I have it on my hard drive. <laughs> I have the footage. It's 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 um, it's still a slow burn film in the same manner of burnt offerings. Um, I I always think of it as like Dan Kurt. I mean, it's not about Barnabas, which is what all the fans have a problem with, and I I very much disagree with them um they i mean i'm gonna be frank they don't know what they're talking about there's more to dark shadows than barnabas but um it's dan curtis is showing okay i'm i'm gonna do something different i'm just gonna 
it's dark shadows in name, but I'm gonna do I'm gonna I'm gonna do my own sort of haunted house film and a gothic romance. And uh that's what the long cut really is. I mean, it's a slow burn tale of possession. David Selby is slowly becoming possessed by his ancestor. And um uh there's some really great moments in the long cut. And uh for the past 10 odd years you know we've been working trying to get it out there it it, it exists we re-spotted the film with the uh, bob Cobert and placed all the music where it should be everybody has been recorded um we, we've selected a, a, a cast member uh, well we selected an actress to to pre-voice grayson hall and a few scenes we darren has uncovered about fi- 10 to 15 minutes of original audio uh, from the from the deleted footage uh, that we have, mm-hmm. um, it's. I, I think it, it, if people got the chance to see it, they would really re. Uh, they would really appreciate what Dan Curtis was trying to do. Um, unfortunately, you know the powers that be at, at Warner Brothers. They, uh, to be frank, again, they they don't really see the value, and it would take an outside label like Scream Factory or or the like to license the title and to pay for the, the final mixing of all the elements but um i mean yeah i i have it <laughs> i have it on my hard drive i have a dvd of it that i usually watch on around halloween of the so it's like i have this own little secret movie mm. uh that nobody else has seen or legally can see at this point um and it's unfortunate it really is um and uh it's something that um that's i mean darren darren gross i've I've been talking to him since i was 10 years old and i think i was eight years old when he uncovered the footage in uh a vault at mgm and now i'm in my 30s (laughs) so yeah they gotta well hopefully some some point i won't be you know 90 by the time it does come out but it's kind of been a, a private goal of mine to somehow get it out there and you know in its proper form um legally you know i'm not just gonna upload it but like it should be seen and um there's some real i mean dan curtis with house of dark shadows it's his first film as a director it's his first film period and as i said he directs the hell out of it he's showing everybody all right this is what i can do i'm gonna take this show that we're filming in a you know eight by eight space in a in a stage in manhattan and open it up and make it real and take you to real places and and that's what i love about house of dark shadows and with night of dark shadows you can see his evolution as a filmmaker behind it especially in the long cut um yeah that's it's it's a in some ways i do love night a little bit more than house and um as a kid, I was fascinated by these these missing scenes, like the seance, and and uh, they're really they're really well directed. You know, one day we'll get it out there. We will. That's what I. Think. What do you think of the chances of that happening? Are and is this something that right might now, happen sooner or later? Right now, they're not looking good. Um, the people that are running Warner Brothers, they don't care. They don't care about the studio that they're running, let alone um, a catalog title that they inherited from the Turner Library that didn't make money in 1971. And, you know, I see online, you know, the fans disparage Night of Dark Shadows, and this is where I get very upset. They're like, it's not good. It's not about Barnabas. Well, this does not help the cause because then the powers at BC this, and they're like, well, even the fans don't like it. Why should we bother allocating x amount of funds to finish it and release it like they don't even care so it's very frustrating um i if i'm frustrated you know darren gross he's been living with it for many many years and he's incredibly frustrated with with how the whole situation has been handled and how it's been janked around at one point you know when the tim burton film was coming out uh it was it was uh they were promised that uh, Night of Dark Shadows would, would be released in its director's cut. And then there was a stupid mistake made within the home entertainment department, and they released the theatrical cut based on this mistake. And uh, the, the Burton film didn't do well anyway, so they were like, why, why should we? 
Yeah. So it's um, it's not going to happen anytime soon. I hope that it will happen, and we'll see. But um, it would have been great to add it out for its 50th anniversary a couple of years ago in 2021. But, uh, it's, um, yeah, it's come and gone. One last question on this. Would it really cost the studio that much to put this out? Um, I mean, there's there's mixing costs. You know, we have to take the the three strip negative and and clean it up a bit. We have to because something also I want to make clear. It's not like because people also say they took these scenes and they removed them from the movie, so you can't just put them back into the movie. And I'm sorry, that's not the case. You're mistaken completely. There is an there there is a full existing negative that runs 128 minutes long. That is not just like you know a, a puzzle, a, a, a series of puzzle pieces. It's a fully intact film, hmm. but we have to clean it up, you know, visually and do a 4K scan on it, you know, clean some specs and 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 acclimated. I mean, it's been sitting in a vault since 1971, um, and then you know the sound remixing. We have all of the cast members' audio. Um, we have uh, about 15 minutes of original on set production track for several scenes that got cut. Um, we respotted the music with Bob Covert, but, uh, it, you know, there's mixing costs that are involved. There's the cleanup costs. Um, so uh, it, it's not, you're not looking at, at something outrageous, um, you know, compared to what they'll spend on a superhero movie today, but there is some change involved and, um, Warner brothers, they do not care. Uh, you know, so, as I said, it's going to have to take take a, a boutique label like Stream Factory um, to, uh, or the like to license it. And also Warners, they're very they're notorious for not licensing titles out. You know, lately in the past three or four years, they've been a little more lenient with Scream Factory or with Criterion. But, um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it'll take a miracle. At this point, I think hmm. that's the our guest is um, very talented and creative director and writer Ansel Farage. Uh, we continue with Ansel. Uh, so you knew by the time you were when you were five years of age that you wanted to be a director. This is what you wanted to do. You're influenced by Dark Shadows. You're also influenced by Langella's Dracula, the Phantom of the Opera production that you mentioned earlier. And that brings us to, I guess, a groundbreaking film for you, 2013, your Dr. Mabusa film, the first of a series of films. And this is very interesting to me. This not a character that you created. It was somewhat of a forgotten character that dated all the way back to a 1921 German novel. A series of films followed. I believe there was a run of films in the 30s. Uh, then there were a number of films done in the 1960s, and then people kind of forgot about it. And then you decided to bring this character back to film. Tell us about that. Yeah, there was, um, you know, when I was uh, growing up, I loved film history. And I would sit in front of Turner Classic Movies, and I would read any film history book I could get my hands on. So I wasn't unfamiliar with Fritz Long and, and his works. And uh, he did a a trilogy of Dr. Mabuza films, you know, one in the 20s, one in the 30s, one in the 60s. Uh, and uh, I had seen as a teenager his second film, you know, The Testament of Dr. Mabuza from the 30s, which uh, was the last film he made in Germany uh, before fleeing, uh, primarily because the film was about the, it was a warning about the rise of the Nazis. And, um, I, but the film itself is so dynamically made um, and and exciting and and uh, has some marvelous you know, twists and turns. But then again, it's Fritz Long; he's a master. Mm -hmm. And I I was I really enjoyed this this. I mean, Doctor Mabuza; he's one of the original supervillains of all time. Um, he's been a noted influence on every single James Bond villain since Dr. No, Ian Fleming has said so. Um, Christopher Nolan had mentioned his influence on Heath Ledger's Joker. Uh, he has his, his fingers in many sort of supervillains to, to, but, um, 
he just as as this character, he was fascinating to me. And um, I I I always said, oh, that would be fun to make a, a Mabusa film one day. And then I, you know, as a teenager, I came up with an idea for well, what what could it be. And I wrote it, and I sort of, you know, put it away on a shelf and always, oh, this would be fun to make one day. And um, I had taken the character, I mean, it wasn't an, a remake or anything. I, I, I took the character and I broke the character down and, and sort of reinvented him a bit and did my own story with him, my own original take. And uh, so when I was 20, I never went to film school. I just, I kept making movies, you know, growing up and, and all through high school and everything. And so when I was about 20, 19, 20, um, my dad was very traditional and, and old school. And that sounds, uh, said, I, I, you got to go to film school. You've got to, I mean, I don't know how to help you and, and you got to make connections there and and uh, that's just how it's done. You know, George Lucas went to USC, like this is the way things are. And I said, no, just let me make a movie. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, let me do Dr. Mabuza. And um, I, so I had the script and I'd always envisioned it as this gothic steampunk fantasy noir. And um, and then, yeah, we, I, I mean, the, the famous story is I, I contacted Kathleen Lee Scott, Jerry Lacey, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm basically, I'm this kid. I wrote this script and, um, there's these roles in this film that I would love for you to play. And, uh, much to my own surprise at the time, they got back to me and they agreed to do it. So we were off and rolling from there. Jerry Lacey, Catherine Lee Scott, both those. Also, Lara Parker, who played Angelique on Dark Shadows, is in the movie as well. And I, and I want to talk about your relationship with them. And it's it's a relationship that, uh, from everything I can see, has has continued to uh, be strong. Um, you, you've done other films with Catherine Lee and I believe others with Jerry as well. But I want to talk about the unusual look to the film, too. Uh, it's done with what is called blue screen technology. So the characters are superimposed onto this, uh, I guess, blank blue screen. And then you add in the backgrounds, which are very colorful and somewhat abstract in some cases. Talk a little bit more, Ansel, about that process of, of making this unusual looking film. Yeah, it was, I had always envisioned it. And when I would pitch the film, I would I would describe to everybody, this is going to look the world's we're gonna well i had built a uh i converted my garage into a sound stage and i had built a blue screen cyclorama uh in there and um so i would tell everybody we're gonna shoot it on blue screen and then i'm gonna put this these this world behind you guys and the world was always sort of a a variation of of the world of the universal monsters that sort of um gothic germanic never never land of europe um and uh i shot a bunch of locations in los angeles i made did some model work um and so there was no cgi involved it was it was it was tangible um it was tangible real places and i superimposed them behind the, the cast and i wanted you know everybody was saying oh this is a noir is, is it going to be black and white and i said no that that's the traditional way i want to do something different and um so i i went for more of a, a dario argento color palette and i had a, a color theory behind it of green would represent mabuza so uh, i use a lot of colored lighting and um uh just to create this certain sort of fantasy lands um germanic fantasy lands that as an audience member, you would it would allow you to buy into that this is not we are not watching reality. We are very much in a fantasy world, and therefore it will allow you to believe some of the things that will then later occur in the narrative as as things get stranger and stranger, and and the occult uh, forces kind of take hold, so to speak, and uh, 
Kathleen Scott was very fascinated by this technology and and doing it. And um, I mean, you know, Jerry and Catherine and Laura and Lyndon Childs, who plays Inspector Von Bank in the film, they were all used to being on stage. So this was not that far out of their their thinking. Of, okay, well, we're basically mm. you know doing some theater here, and uh, we'll trust this kid to make it look good <laughs> after the fact and um yeah it was it was always designed to be a never never lands and um it, it, yeah it was a bit challenging but um it was it was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun world building really and to get that steampunker gothic aesthetic uh basically with no money at all because i had no money i didn't even have a microphone on the first film uh there was some just hmm such little money behind it because uh, as i said i don't come from a family of, of means or anything and, and there was no crew it was a crew of, my, of just me in my garage um suddenly with the dark shadows cast that i'd never expected ever in my life to to meet let alone direct and um yeah that was that was that was uh kind of the process of making that film when you sent these messages to Jerry Lacey, Catherine Lee Scott, Lara Parker, and then they said yes, were you surprised? Yeah, I was. I was very surprised. <laughs> I was. Um, I was a little bit afraid of Catherine, to be honest, uh, especially when we first met, because I was so young, and I don't think she believed that I had written the script, so she sort of cross-examined me on <laughs> various questions about the story and the character, and, and I was able to coherently answer them and she would ask you know how, what what is my vision for the film and how do i plan to achieve all this and and i would tell her but it was wild because here she, she was the first one i met of the, of the shadows cast and so here is you know maggie evans you know in person um you know ask you know cross-examining me and and i have to give her solid answers and, and you know i was able to do that uh but like directing her was a, was a little daunting just because she came with uh baggage for me as a kid of like i grew up watching you and now i have to tell you what to do and you know now i'm not even catherine is a very big champion of mine and and i've learned i've learned so much i mean she even taught me how to write a press release uh, she didn't, she's not scary at all, but I was so young and so not prepared for any of this. I was used to working with friends from school or, you know, making movies with my action figures and, and suddenly here they are. Um, and Jerry is, is such a nice guy, a down to earth guy. And, and he, um, he too was a little frightening when he called me up because Humphrey Bogart's voice was coming through my phone. And, um, he said, you know, I, I, it was a month after I had contacted him initially. And he said, I, I just saw this email. I don't know what this is, um, but I, and I, I don't know if it's even still happening, but I am intrigued by it. Uh, my, my wife and I, his wife is Julia Duffy, which I didn't know at the time. His wife is Julia Duffy. Um, because my wife and I were planning to go to Italy for the month of June, which is look like when you're planning a shoot, but I'm intrigued. So convince me. And so I spent an hour and a half on the phone convincing him. And, um, it was, I mean, yeah, it was, it was kind of scary because it's like, okay, this is real. You know, they're, um, these people are, are stepping out of my videotape and, and now literally into my life and I have to be the captain of the ship and I'm really young, but, um, but they're so, so nice. So, I, you know, pretty early on, I, 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 um, I relaxed <laughs> and I was able to direct and, and, um, uh, I, I guess I impressed them enough that they were, they had, they had enough fun that they were willing to come back again and again. And Laura Parker too, Laura, you know, when I first met her, she, uh, she's, she, here's Angelique and, and she, hmm. Gla not glaring but she's she's staring me down with those luminous blue eyes that she has and she said do you have lights 
And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I love lights. <laughs> and I got home, I'm like, mom, dad, we gotta go buy some lights. And, uh, uh, but then she, she, um, she was very, fa- I think she was just fascinated by me and, and we had a long talk, um, during the making of the movie. And she was asking me, uh, literary influences because she writer herself. And, and she was saying, you know, you need to go back to school because she, she teaches. And it's like, yeah, but I hate school. And she goes, but, but you need to go to school. Yeah. And I, I, I'm sorry to say I never went back to school, but she definitely tried to get me to go back and um but she was yeah she was intrigued by me and um and and i keep saying they're all so nice now you know know, i've worked with several of them and i've known them for now many years and and they're this this sort of crazy extended family that i have and i'm very very grateful that i have them and i can i can call up any of them really and if i have a question of like you know how do you do this or you know, what's your advice for this? Or, hey, would you read the script and tell me what you think? You know, is it good? <laughs> you know, what do you think as an actor? And um, and they're all, you know, I know I have, they're all in my corner. And um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's something I never, ever thought. I never, I never anticipated, never dreamt of as a kid growing up, uh, looking at Catherine's book or watching House of Dark Shadows or Night of Dark Shadows that I would um, know them personally and be able to direct them time and time again, film after film after film. And uh, that's something that I said to them when I was putting together the first movie. I, yeah, I, I, you know, I do love Dark Shadows and I, I, you know, but I respect you all as actors. You've done things beyond Dark Shadows. You've worked with some incredible people behind and in front of the camera on some, you know, substantial projects. And I want to work with you guys as, as that, as actors, not just as Dark Shadows cast members. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be just, you know, a fan. Um, I want to, you know, you all have years of talent and experience. And so that's what, that's really what I'm after. And, uh, and I think they liked that, that it was, um, there, there was a respect coming from me, um, and it wasn't just, you know, pandering. And um, and Jerry had never really played. I mean, Reverend Trask was a, an intense guy, but he'd never really played a role like Doctor Malbuza. So he really kind of liked that. And you know, the character he, he's a man that can do literally anything, um, and he's he's a, a a genuine threat, and so you know, a power and. Um, the jury had fun with that, and uh, and Jerry is is very quiet and cool, and not at all, all like Reverend Trask or and and you know also having played Bogart and played against him, it was fun to to take the noir aspect of that. You know, Bogart is always almost usually the hero, and you know unless it was his earlier roles where he was a gangster, but to take the you know the heroic noir aspect and turn it on his head, and, and now he's this criminal mastermind and so yeah jerry had fun they all had fun i mean that's yeah you know, that's why they've you know, come back numerous times well it's terrific they've become uh allies part of your network uh is jerry is he retired or is he still active in making films he's he well he just he does a little cameo in my in my new film the great nick d but um he says uh i'm I'm retired. I'm, you know, playing the stock market, but I know if somebody gave him something really juicy and I keep pestering him myself, somebody gave him something that he could chew into, he would do it. And that's with all of them, you know, but, um, uh, you know, I, I have a couple ideas too. I'd love to get him, you know, away from the stock market computer and, and Hey Jerry, let's get back on set. But, uh, if it, it depends, <laughs> It depends on his mood. <laughs> <laughs> and so let's jump ahead. 2019, a film called Loon Lake, which is a more traditional film in the way that it's made, uh, comes out. This is really when I first became aware of you. I watched Loon Lake on Tubi, and I believe it's still there, available for streaming, free of charge. It's a, it's a very interesting movie. Uh, it is It stars another actor that, you've really become uh, 
friends with, well, for a long time, Nathan Wilson. We'll talk more about him. He plays this main character of Lewis, who has gone through a personal tragedy, leaves the city, travels to the remote countryside uh, somewhere in Minnesota, trying to get away from it all, trying to kind of recharge himself. But he accidentally disturbs the grave of a local witch, and that leads to all sorts of trouble. Uh, tell us about your relationship with Nathan and why you felt he was good for this particular role. Well, Nate, I've known since I was probably 19. He auditioned for a comedy movie, a comedy film that we that we made, and uh, we just clicked. Uh, he, I was again, I was super young, and, uh, and he was young too. And uh, he, he and I, you know, we realized pretty early on that we both liked the same type of film and uh had some of the same interests and goals that we wanted to do and and uh something we joke about now is he goes uh well i was always in search of a director and i said well i've always been in search of an actor and so we just kind of like like i said we clicked and um so then you know we went on from the comedy to make mabuza and several other films and as long as i'd known him he'd been talking about this uh this haunted cemetery names from minnesota southwest minnesota and uh he said there's this cemetery that's that's uh, there's this witch she buried there and uh, they're great if you cross her grave you know bad things happen and it's you know 10 minutes from my family farm but you know one time i went out there when i was 15 and this happened and and you know i've always wanted to make a movie about it and so it was something that he'd always kind of talked about and uh you know around uh 2017 i said dude i cannot make another horror movie a thriller or you know anything in the genre i i can't do it i just i'm creatively burnt out i need to show that i can do more and mm -hmm. so we made a love story will and liz which is a film i'm very proud of and so after we did that he was okay okay now we have to make the movie about the witch and so he said <laughs> all right fine and uh, then i realized you know when when you know he's i said you have to tell me everything about this and, and so he you know told me what he, he could and we did a lot of research on on the history of, of mary jane the witch of loon lake and i realized with this project i could do a folk horror film which i'd always wanted to try um i do love witchfinder general and um so this movie was that opportunity to play in the witchfinder general blood on satan's claw uh sandbox if you will and um so we started writing it and uh we we wrote this character of a farmer who's just the next door neighbor and and um also the idea of shooting in minnesota versus you know los angeles i'm from la i'm from you know venice beach and that that so that just sounded great because you get to you know go on an adventure and shoot it in the places where the story took you know the story originates from uh so that that sounded like loads of fun and um so anyway we wrote this character of a, a you know a farmer that that's you know a nice neighbor and uh I, as we're writing i'm like you know dude this could be a a part for david selby and nate was like david selby's not gonna do this you know i've been watching him on your general fx and he was just in equals with Carson Stewart. And how is that can? Like, he's not going to do this. But I met David at our, you know, world premiere of Dr. Mabuza down on, you know, Coronado Islands when, you know, when the first film came out, he was there. And he was super nice. And like, I mean, they all are, the, sh the entire Dark Shadows cast, they are incredibly nice and kind. And there's no prima donna aspect or Hollywood aspect to any of them. Uh, and he said, you know, maybe we'll get to work together. And I said, that would be amazing. Mm. And so we kept in touch over the years. And he kept saying, you know, Angela, I just want to play a guy. I just want to play a guy. I don't want to be in a suit. So I'm like, this is a farmer. Like, this is just a guy. Like, this is maybe a great opportunity to, to you know, have him do it. And so Nate said, well, if you think that he'll do it, send it to him. And we also had in the scripts the role of this preacher. Uh, so I, I offered it to David. I said, you know, this, is, this would kind of be a dual role, but, um, uh, you know, have a look and this is what we're thinking. 
And so he read it and he goes, yeah, I'll do it. This is fun. This is, this, I'll go on that adventure. And, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, he, he said yes. And that was in early 2018 and we had planned to shoot, you know, in time for the harvest. So September of 2018, we could go to Minnesota and he said, I'll be there. And uh, so then right after that, and I, I, I called up Catherine Lee Scott. And I, Catherine is from Minnesota. I said, Catherine, we're making this movie. You have to do it. <laughs> we're, we're shooting in Minnesota. You got to be part of it. And um, she she was down. And uh, so she flew in and, and she had her brother and her sister-in-law. They appear in, in the opening execution scene. And, and um, it was fun to do something that was not in L.A. where, you know, it's this it's this story that everybody uh back there they know about um you know it's it's uh when we were there it, it, the film was supposed to be a secret uh the town is about uh it's a very small town so of course the entire town knew that the, about this movie by the time that we showed up and they were all just so excited and and welcoming and you know come to my house come to my farm come to my store or whatnot hmm. Can you film a scene here? They all wanted to be involved, which is the antithesis to how things are done in Los Angeles, where this is an industry town. It's what we do here, and it's all about money. Uh, again, which we didn't have any money, you know, making Moonlight. But uh, mm -hmm. so it was just, it was such a, it was the best ex filmmaking experience I've had, uh, just due to the, 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 and excitement and encouragement of the people there, and they were telling us, you know, we've 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 grown up with this legend of, of mary jane the witch of Loon lake you know i went out there when i you know they would all tell us their stories and like we've all been waiting for something like this to happen to bring this story that we've passed down generation after generation to life and you guys are doing it so i mean that was really special it, it was uh it was really special it was really nice and um you know going you know we, we, we you know we made the film and then we went back there to premiere it and you know we had to turn people away at the movie theater we were like yeah this is an invite only ex experience we packed the the movie there was this, the the area is so small we had to go to iowa to show the film but everybody you know they were lining up to see it and uh you know to 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 present it to the and, and these these people that have have lived with this story of the witch of loon lake uh it was it was incredible, and they 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 loved it, which was you know very gratifying for us that we did a good job, and uh, yeah. The town is actually called Loon Lake. The town is Round Lake. Uh, Round Lake. Lake is is ten minutes from Round Lake. Uh, and there's Spirit Lake. There's Indian Lake. There's you know several lakes, but uh, Nate is from Round Lake, and that's where we shot most of the film on his family farm and, and then out at the cemetery where Mary Jane, the witch of Loon Lake is buried. And, uh, so yeah, all on location. And, uh, I got to, to play in the Witchfinder general sandbox. And, you know, I told my DP to watch it. I said, I want this to look like John Coquillian has shot it. And, and, um, to embrace the, the, the landscape and the the rural farmlands that you know obviously does not exist in Los Angeles, and um, to play up the the naturalness so that as the story unfolds, you know things are very real and you start to wonder: Is Lewis the main character? Is he? Are these things truly happening to him, or is he slowly losing his mind? You know because he's so grief stricken due to you know, the, the tragedy that has befallen him at the start of the film. And, um, yeah, it was just, it was the best experience making that film. David Selby is, is a huge name, not only from Dark Shadows, but he's he's done a lot of other primetime television. Not that long ago, I think he was on an episode of, he was either Chicago Med or Chicago Fire. Chicago uh, Fire. He, he's a, yeah. Chicago Fire. He's a huge name. He went straight from our set in Minnesota to Chicago Fire. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. What's he like in person? He's just a, a, a down-to-earth, super nice guy. There's no pretension at all about him. There's, he, he, 
you know, he's not Richard Channing, he's not Quentin Collins, he's just this nice guy. And so eager to please, and he's willing to, to, you know, any crazy thing I ask of him, you know, he's willing to do it until I'm satisfied as the director, and, and there's no, as I've said with all of them, there's no prima donna Hollywood nature to them all. They're just super nice, and, and him and his wife, Chip, you know, they're, they're incredibly supportive of me and and um he always wants to do his best and he will go out of his way to give you his best and you know when we were making the movie when he showed up because we shot for a month and when he showed up you know again everybody knew and so we were at the local uh vineyard the winery and people are people are coming up to him but Oh, I, I loved you on uh, Dark Shadows and they're taking pictures and it spread like wildfire that David Stel Quentin Collins is now in town. <laughs> and um and uh, and then you know, we would shoot late hours and you know, we're up to like four o'clock in the morning drinking beers and laughing about stupid things that happened and he's just like there was there was no there was no sort of like line in the sand, if that makes sense, with sure. us. Uh you know, and by then I I I'd known him for a couple of years. I hadn't directed him, but I'd known him, so there wasn't that sort of daunting, oh my god, you know, aspect that there was. You know, the first time I I met Catherine. Um, so yeah, it was just very it was it was very easy. He's very easy to work with. He you know he wants yeah. to to give you all he can, and he does. You know. <laughs> Well, things obviously went well between the two of you because you bring him back for your 2023 film, Todd Tarantula. It's a time travel. It's really interesting because it's shot in live action and then it is rotoscoped. Tell us exactly what that process is. Yeah, it it's a, it's a script that I had wanted to make again since I was in my teens. Um, it's a, a Los Angeles psychedelic mystery and... Uh, I had always envisioned it as a, uh, as like an anime, an anime, like, you know, Akira, the Japanese uh, adult animation film, or, you know, like a comic book come to life. And the script is so strange. <laughs> I always, you know, it was like, if this was a cartoon, you know, it would, people would, it would, people would get it. And then I realized, wait, with rotoscope, I could, I can achieve that effect. So rotoscoping is, yeah, you shoot something live action and then it's it's rendered into a, a kind of animation. Uh, Ralph Bashke, who did uh, had, um, Fritz the Cat and Lord of the Rings, uh, he was a, he used rotoscope quite a bit. Um, and it just, it gives it this sort of uncanny uh, effect to to the proceedings and i knew that it was it was the right way to go with this particular story so yeah we we shot it all live action across los angeles on location various locations and on stages and and there was no green screen involved which kind of amazed me because i you know for years and years i always thought a lot of it would be green screen just because hmm. the story is so outrageous but we did it practically, and then it was rotoscoped in post-production to, to make it like a cartoon come to life. It's received a lot of critical praise online. It's it's done really well for you. It's done really well. Yeah, criti crit I mean, it, I've gotten the best reviews of my career with it. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's been a... I, I, at one point I was like, this movie will never happen. I'd wanted to make this movie for years and years and years. And we had several false starts and, you know, it's always down some money. And then, you know, after the pandemic, I said, I'm making Todd Tarantula. I have to make it now because if I don't make it now, it will never get done because I'm going to be too old to make it. I, you know, I was a teenager when I wrote it and mm. I'm not anymore, you know? And so, you know, your, your thinking and your approach to things changes you grow and mature as a person. And, and as I've grown and matured as a filmmaker, so it's, a, and it's a young person's story. Uh, so I had to do it before I got too old to make it. That sounds very egotistical of me, but it's the truth. And, um, 
it's about uh, this young punk taught tarantula whose motorbike goes missing. And um, he starts to uncover that there's something he's been estranged from his father. And there's something going on that uh, obviously deals with his motorbike and with his father. And but also it goes into the mythology of Los Angeles and, and sort of the urban legends of Los Angeles, of which we have many. And that swirling, what it swirls around at the center of it all is this figure, Lucifer Gray, uh, played by David Selby, uh, who seems to know what's up. And um, David was daunted by it, really. I had written, I mean, I, the script existed for many years. I wrote it originally for my mentor, Lyndon Childs, who was the first professional actor I ever worked with. He'd been directed by Alfred Hitchcock. He was on The Munsters. He was on The Twilight Zone. He did everything that you could think of, you know, he was, he did it. And, uh, when I met him when I was 18 years old. And, um, so, uh, I wrote it. Lucifer was originally written for Lyndon. Um, but then Lyndon passed away before we shot Dr. Mabuza too. So anyway, David Selby finally played this role and, and he was daunted by it. And, and I said, David, you know, this is what I want is seductive evil. And I know that you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you can do it. I says, well, but because he's such a nice guy. But Ansel, you know, is there something kind of redeeming about him? Is there something? And I'm like, well, no, but, you know, he's 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 evil, you know. And, and But, you know, out of this evil, something good can happen. Because it is ultimately good versus evil, as any you know story ultimately is, and and his his wife Chip, because we were out at lunch, she said, "David, this is one of the greatest roles that you can play. It's from the Bible. It's it's evil, and you can bring it to life. You don't want to play the father role. You can play it with your eyes closed. This role is a challenge, and this is the role that you should play." Mm. And then she turned to me and she goes, "Ansel, if you have any problems with him, you let me know, and I will show up on set and make sure he does." Play. <laughs> Nice. And thank you, Chip. But um, so then David called me a week later and he goes, I found him. I said, okay, I knew you would, David. And, um, and he had, yeah, he had, when he, when he finally had sort of let go of his own fears and his own good hearted nature and could dive into being just absolute wickedness and seductive evil, then uh, he, he had a blast, and then he won Best Supporting Actor at the uh, Hollywood Real Independent Film Festival for his performance, and I was very proud. Uh, uh, so I don't really think he's actually won an acting award before, so for him to win for my film was nice. And yeah, uh, yeah it's it's uh, he had fun. He had fun. <laughs> Final question for our guest Ansel Farage. What's up next? What is your next project? Um, we are in post-production on another script that has been around for many years. It's a, it's a melodramatic comedy called The Great Nick D. And um, it's about a washed-up porn star who's now a Venice Beach nobody, uh, Nick D. And uh, he's on an odyssey to sort of restart his mainstream acting career in order to win back uh, the love of his life, who is now an Academy Award-nominated actress on the level of Meryl Streep. And um, it's this crazy odyssey uh, of his that uh, we've been, Nate and I have been talking about again for as long as I've known him. And uh, we shot it just in time for the strikes. So it's been in post-production. It won't be coming out until next year. Uh, and uh, David Selby is in it. Plays Nick D's father. Catherine Lee Scott is in it. Uh, she's she's not the villain, but she's a force to be reckoned with. Uh, Laura Parker is in it. Olan Jones is in it from from Edward Scissorhands and and Miracle Mile and Natural Born Killers. Uh, Lisa Richards is in it. Uh, 
film director Sam Irvin, who directed Elvira's Haunted Hills and and mm. produced her on uh, Gods and Monsters, and just has this new book out on Frankenstein: The True Story. He's in it. <laughs> nice. Um, it's it's a very stacked cast. It's uh, we've got a musical number in it, so you'll get to see the the Dark Shadows actors singing and dancing. Uh, it's so wild. It's so different from what we've done which is exactly why we wanted to make it uh i'm i'm excited to share it when it's you know time to share it uh it's uh, quite long it's it was you know a nearly a three-hour film and right now i'm i'm whittling it down to a manageable length but it'll be um it'll be coming out oh well you know we'll do the festival circuit next year and uh, it'll be coming out in 2024 so you yeah, the great nick d don't let any James Aubrey type characters uh, get their hands on it and try to, you know, take 40 minutes out. All right. Yeah. Right. My dad. Uh, this is too long. <laughs> Our guest has been Ansel Farage, already a prolific director at a, at a young age. Uh, we've been talking about a number of his films, including his series of Dr. Mabuza movies. Uh, also, Loon Lake, Todd Tarantula. Uh, and his great relationships with all those Dark Shadows alumni. Uh, Ansel, we really appreciate your time. Um, you've, you've gone above and beyond. We had some earlier technical difficulties that I think we have overcome, but we really thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Now, thank you so much for having me. It was, it was fun to talk, and I'd love to come back uh, when the Nick, great Nick D comes out. Absolutely. Again, our guest, Ansel Farage. I uh, also want to mention, as an aside to uh, Tracy and our listeners, uh, Tracy, uh, uh, not on the microphone for this show, but still our producer, uh, this is our 10th show. We have reached a milestone. Nobody thought it was possible except for Tracy and maybe me, and uh, we're going to try to keep going. 10 shows and counting, hopefully. Uh, so we want to thank Tracy for all of her help Uh producing and co-hosting these shows through our first 10. We want to thank all of you for entering our Museum of the Macabre, and we will hope uh, that you'll join us next time right here in the Ghostly Gallery.